Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers, providing you with practical advice to enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. The advice given in this podcast is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia Stroke Foundation, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. Stroke can change not only your ability to move, but the way you experience the world around you through your senses. Perception of touch and temperature, numbness, pins and needles, issues with proprioception, as well as oversensitivity and sensory overload can really affect your daily life. In this podcast, we talk about coping with sensory issues and what you can do about them. To help us with this, we have in the studio stroke survivor Karen Bailey, as well as occupational therapist Kirsty Cole from Strokeline. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. And on the phone, we have Professor Susan Hillier from the University of South Australia. Susan is a physiotherapist and researcher with teaching and research interest in neuroscience and rehabilitation, and she's also a member of the Stroke Foundation's Clinical Council. Thank you for joining us, Susan. No worries. Now, I'd like to start with you, Karen. Uh, now, you're no stranger to these podcasts. You were a guest on our very first episode talking about uh, rehabilitation and neuroplasticity. Now, in that episode, you told us your stroke story. But for now, could you just give us a brief recap of when your stroke happened and the initial treatment you received? Thanks, Chris. Yes, I had my stroke eight years ago and my children were aged three and two. There weren't any warning signs um, and um, I had a massive stroke that caused complete paralysis in one side of my body. Um, ultimate testing showed that it was the result of a cognitive um, a, a defect with my heart. So I got to hospital quickly. Um, I received clot-busting treatment to get oxygen back to my brain. Uh, the paralysis in my face resolved itself quite quickly, and within about 12 hours I was up and walking. I had ongoing rehabilitation to do with impact on on my balance, but I was walking. Um, so initially, that involved a lot of um, therapy to get my arm moving again. Okay. Now, but when you recovered that movement, though, I understand that you still had some sensory issues that were ongoing. Uh, what was that like? Okay. So, so eight years on, I I still have those sensory issues. I didn't know where um, my arm was. So things were happening while I was in hospital, like I would get up out of bed to walk across the room to go to the bathroom and the bathroom door would hit me on the side of the head and I would turn around and find that my arm was hooked around the door. So I, I didn't have any sense of, of where my arm and hand were and what they were doing. Um, I didn't have any sense of touch at all. They do testing to, to see if you can distinguish between hot and cold and I'm like, well, is anything even touching me? And they also do testing to see if you can distinguish between sharp and blunt. And again, it's like, well, is anything actually touching me? So um, I, I think um, pe people look at a person who is able to move their arm and think everything is okay. Um, but I, I describe it as being a, a, a bit like being blind. Your eyes move, but, but they're not, not effective. So, so if you can move your arm, but you um, have no idea where it is or what it's doing, or you're getting no touch feedback at all, then it's very limited 
um, ability to use it. You recently talked about these kind of issues in your in a blog on Enable Me, and you also mentioned though the emotional impact of this of these sensory problems, and that was how that was intertwined with the the physical effects. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I I think many stroke survivors um, experience grieving, and for for me, the grieving was a lot around. Um, um, how difficult it was for me to do every little thing throughout the day. Um, so, so um, you know, an in- inability to do my own hair, put on the jewellery that I wanted to do, to get myself dressed involved shutting myself in a completely silent room for 15 minutes, um, which when you're parenting two preschool-aged children um, it is, is complex. You know, there was also grieving around how difficult it was to spend time with my children just because of the impact of, of their busyness on my brain. And, you know, all of the things that I wanted to be able to do with them and for them that I was really struggling to, to do. So, you know, I, I made a decision early on that I was going to be um, high functioning. I was going to return to work. I was going to, you know, be the best parent I could be. And, and I was being those things, but it was coming at the cost of really significant cognitive fatigue. By about five o'clock every day, I, I truly had no emotional resilience left. My brain um, really was um, in, in shutdown point. You know, when you're living like that, life isn't very pleasurable. Mm. It, look, it is clearly, yeah, a very big impact, and but it also seems to be one that affects a lot of stroke survivors. Susan, if I could ask you then, do we know why people have these sort of problems that, um, that Karen's been describing? Um, yes, we do. Yes, there's a few things going on. So there are a lot of senses that we use to um, navigate our environment and to know where we are in space and what we're doing and what we're touching and what we're seeing and what we're hearing, obviously. And now, in this case, when we're talking about the senses of the body, um, there's one basic one that everybody kind of knows about. So we know what we're touching through these little pressure detectors, you know, under our skin. And our brain normally picks up these messages and interprets them. Now, in a stroke, those messages are being detected by the little pressure sensors in the skin, but the brain, the part of the brain that appreciates them and makes literally makes sense of these messages coming into the brain um, is damaged. Now, like anything with stroke, you know, the, the, that part of the brain could be actually quite dead. You know, the, the, those neurons might have uh, all died as part of the stroke. They might have some um, diminished function. So then we'll get a sort of a faulty message. So some weird sort of, you know, numbness. Even the pins and needles that people describe, um, you know, is a sort of a misinterpretation in a way or these sort of faulty, almost like a staticky phone line, you know, that the messages just aren't quite getting through properly. Um, but it's at the brain end in the case of stroke. Um, obviously, you can get pins and needles from, you know, other sorts of things like, you know, problems with the nerves in the body itself. But in this instance, it's the, it's the brain that's the issue. And then the other thing that Karen described was that almost like she would forget about her arm. That can just be the sensory loss, like you just literally don't feel it anymore or then there's an even more difficult sort of phenomenon to understand is that you can actually forget that a body part is yours so 
So we also have this very hidden sense called a sense of ownership. We know that we've got body parts and that they belong to us. And in a very bizarre way in stroke, people can lose that sense of body parts. They can even lose a sense of space, like the left side of space or something. So these are percept- more perceptual disorders. Um, but they're, you know, as Karen described um, really beautifully, they are incredibly, uh, well, discombobulating because they're hidden, but nobody knows. And who knew that you knew that you had an arm? And now you don't know that you've got an arm, but nobody knows it. So, you know, they're incredibly um, difficult stroke sequelae to deal with. Okay. And um, what about uh, proprioception? Um, Is that that related as well? I guess if we're going to talk about proprioception, we should get you to explain what that is. Yes, sure. Now, this is is one of my favourite senses, actually. It's complex. So there's quite a few different little receptors in our body, in our tissues, that tell us where we are in space at any particular time, or they tell us, you know, if you shut your eyes and you let your hand dangle, you can feel that your, you know, your fingers are facing down, and you know that your wrist is is bent without looking at it. So that sense of the position in space, and then also if we shut our eyes and we move our arm in a circle, we know it's a circle, and we know how fast it is, and we know the direction. That's all proprioception, this sense of position and motion in space. And it's quite a remarkable thing. It's probably not entirely well understood. But the little uh, detectors for this that we use mostly are little uh, fantastic little kind of strain gauges in the muscles themselves, in the mus- within the muscle fibres or in between the muscle fibres of the muscle. So uh, if you, you can't move very well, then you can't sense movement very well. Um, so it's a bit of a double-edged sword for people who've got movement difficulties after stroke. Now, there are little receptors in the soft tissues of the joints, you know, the ligaments, but they tend to be more sort of a warning uh, receptor. So if you, you know, your joint stretches too far, you get this sort of sense of, I better not do, I know where I am now, I better not go any further. So they're the main ones that we know about, uh, that we understand the best, but there's there's other aspects to proprioception. But it is one of those uh, amazing senses that, again, most people don't stop to think or be aware that they've even got it. Okay. So when you lose it, it's sort of hidden. I feel a little bit like I'm just rattling off a uh, list of different senses here. Um, but we also put yeah. out a we did put out a call for for questions for this podcast. We had some people talking yeah. about things like taste and smell as well. Oh, yeah. um, are they yeah. also related to these these uh, touch and other senses? Well, they are similar in that. I mean, they've got little receptors. These little sort of detectors in the in the body itself pick up signals from the environment and then send those signals to the brain and then the brain interprets. And absolutely, taste, smell, vision, uh, hearing, all of them. So obviously the eyes are the little detectors for vision. The ears are for hearing. And then taste is in the tongue, partly, and smell in the nose. Um, and again, if, if people have problems with these after stroke, it's because the different parts of the brain that receive these signals and then make sense of them either aren't working at all in you know very drastic cases or are working a little bit and actually often coming to the wrong conclusions. So people can missmell things or missee things, for example. Um, so so yeah, all of the senses follow that kind of pathway. They're picking up signals, um, sending them to the brain, but in in certain depending on where the stroke is, which part of the brain is affected then our ability to actually make use of those incoming signals can be really impaired. Now, another question, though, that we were, we were asked, a couple of people asked about, was 
well, they describe changes in their sensation in the months or years after their stroke, both in the intensity, like um, pins and needles coming and going, and the location of where they feel it on their body. Uh, is that is that a common occurrence, and why would that happen? Uh, it's not. It's, a lot of these long-term problems are not actually well understood, but I do hear this a lot as a clinician as well. Uh, and I've learned a lot listening to my clients over the years about these strange long-term things. And as best as we know, this is really an example of neuroplasticity. So I think, you know, in the press, neuroplasticity has kind of got this holy image that it's all marvellous and it's all recovering. It's the the brain's, you know, ability to change. Well, yes, the brain can change, but it can change in a way that's not particularly helpful. So to the best of our knowledge at the moment, these longer term changes are um, you know, can be viewed as sort of faulty, faulty rewiring. You know, so if you know we're hoping for the sort of neuroplastic change that's a positive rewiring, this these sorts of um, changes can be um, a negative rewiring, if you like. Now, I I do have a bit of a theory that it's you know, as we know with movement, it's a bit of use it or lose it, and I do feel that probably with sensation, there's a bit of an element of that that if people aren't able to use their senses well, then, you know, there can be problems longer term as a sort of a secondary thing. But, yeah, but basically the short answer is, to best we know, faulty, re- faulty rewiring as opposed to positive. Okay, it sounds like that leads um, well into discussion about rehabilitation. But there's one other thing I wanted to ask both you and Karen about before that, which is, I suppose... Now, when we're talking about some of these sensory issues, it sounds like we're talking about numbness and loss of the, the sense, but then there comes with it an oversensitivity as well, where um, like a touch can be painful and then leading to sensory overload, which I know that you talked about, Karen. Can you describe what sensory overload is like in your experience? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, if I could just um, follow on from what Susan was saying, my experience um, is that going along with the um, um, Im- imperfect um, understanding of the brain of the messages that it's receiving um, comes tactile defensiveness, which um, mm. um, is um, it's painful for things to be in contact with with your skin, um, and your brain is um, in almost constant fight or flight. And also going on along with that is twenty four seven neuropathic pain through the whole whole left side of my body. So um, mm, for, for yeah. me, it, it feels like all of my muscles are really, really big, thick elastic bands that are being pulled as tight as someone can possibly pull them all of the time. And um, as, as I fatigue, th- those things um, become a lot more pronounced to the point that Really, I, I'm in so so much pain. I I really can't function. Mm. Um. So so to comment on um sensory overload or sensory overstimulation, um it it it's most commonly understood in children with um, autism spectrum disorders. Um. So so what it's like for me is um um my brain doesn't filter um. Um, information in the environment around me. So, so, so um, movement, multiple conversations or no- noise sources, um, um, bright, bright lights, um, um, all, all of those things, instead of my brain just putting them to the background and focusing on the thing I need to focus on, my brain focuses on all of it um, to, to the point that 
I'm I'm actually in distress and again my my brain has just taken in so much information it's like it's short circuiting and um again that really ramps up the pain that I experience so you know it's one of the biggest challenges for me all day every day um how do I get through life where I'm um wanting to and needing to to earn an income working um, in an open plan office, regularly being in quite long meetings where um, I'm really concentrating on lots, you know, things that lots of different people are saying, um, um, and and um, the the time when I'm not at work, I'm around um, children, and my my children are now quite a bit older. They they're now twelve and ten, but. Um, they, they they still don't understand that they can't both talk to me at the same time, and they always do. Um, and when they're not both talking to me at the same time, they're fighting with one another. Um, so, um, you know, it impacts on my ability to take children into environments that, um, you know, uh, kid, kids love. Um, in Indoor heated swimming centres, um, shopping centres, um, time zone, um, um, you know, a, um, an adventure playground. Um, anything where there's lots and lots of kids and lots of movement is is really quite difficult for me. And so um, we need to think of some strategies of how we manage that. Susan, does that fit in with your experience? Oh, absolutely. I think that's really, really, really so beautifully put. For not, not a very beautiful phenomenon. So because we've got so many senses, as Karen described, you know, and the word overload kind of gives it away, while brain does something quite marvellous, it, it, it actually inhibits us noticing or paying attention to or giving any weight to most of the senses that are, you know, that are coming from our body, coming from our little receptors. Um, so this is a phenomenal job that goes on in the background all the time. So actually what we've learned to do is ignore them and, then, and we learn to pay attention to what is most useful. Now that part of the functioning of the brain can be affected after stroke and I think I can't put it any better than Karen is that, that everything kind of overwhelms all the all of the different senses um, then overwhelm rather than sort of being purposeful and we select you know a few bits and pieces from each sense to get the you know the whole picture uh, it's it's it is just this big you know like the orchestra tuning up is how somebody once described it to me Karen's right you know that Finding strategies to be in environments where there isn't so many so many different modes of sensory experience coming in. Um, only going in those environments when you're really fresh, so that your brain can you know is at its best. Um, but uh, and and then and talking about it really sensibly as Karen's done with her children to say I just can't cope. And interestingly, when when you talk about this stuff, there are actually a lot of people who haven't got a stroke who have this and they kind of ignore it, but they wonder why. Being in public is so taxing for them, so it's, it's worthwhile having a conversation with uh, with almost anybody because there's a lot of people who have a, a version of this experience. So that's that, and you know, you could say sensory overload in a way, it's perceptual and cognitive overload because it's the whole process where it's just too, it's too much. If you want me to go back to the tactile defensiveness stuff, um, yes, this sort of um, oversensitivity uh, is. Is, is relatively common after stroke as well, um, and uh, it, it could be um, 
partly a miswiring and it often is related to pain, as Karen said, what we'd call neuropathic pain, which is where there isn't actually um, sort of, there's not tissue damage, you know, which is picked up by a different set of little receptors called nociceptors. There's nothing actually wrong with the muscles as such, but they're, but the signals that are going to the brain from the muscles are being interpreted as pain, even though there isn't anything wrong with the muscles. Um, and this, again, you don't have to have a stroke to have this kind of pain. There's lots of other syndromes that have it, but it is a particularly nasty sort of pain. Um, and uh, it's again, it's a misperception, but it's, that sounds like a, you know, like it's a simple thing. It's not, you know, it's like a phantom pain. Uh, it's it's very insidious and it's very tiring. Um, um, with the, um, the the sort of the the, re- the miswiring as well, Karen also talked about something where if, if some if she just gets a normal touch, you know, like a piece of cotton wool on the skin, will feel like it's a painful stimulus. That's called allodynia, um, and it's where the brain is completely misinterpreting um, a sensation. So there's a complete kind of miswiring, and we do see that a fair bit uh, with people with certain kinds of pain syndromes after stroke, but after also other after injuries as well. Um, and all this rewiring can be quite bizarre. I remember in one of our sensory trials, we tested the, um, you know, the touch sensation of a, a man on his feet. And he consistently, if we touched him on his right big toe, he consistently always felt it on his middle left toe. That wasn't a problem with left or right. He just had this complete miswiring um, of appreciation of even where the touch was from one side to the other, from his stroke, more stroke-affected side to the other. So the, the capacity for miswiring is quite extraordinary. This is the Enable Me podcast, enableme.org.au. People call Stroke Line for many different reasons during their recovery. Some call from their hospital bed, others might call years down the track. The stroke journey can be a roller coaster, and no matter what stage you are in, we are here to help make that ride a little smoother. Strokeline is staffed by a team of qualified health professionals who have the latest evidence-based information. A big part of what the Strokeline team does is help to break the problem down, providing information on different treatment options, resources and services, and working out the best option for you. So whether you are setting new goals to get back to driving, or work, or trying to find an approach to communication that works for you, or perhaps a carer finding it a bit tough, StrokeLine is there for you. Call 1-800-STROKE. That's 1-800-787-653. I think it's probably a good point, I suppose, when we're talking about issues of neuropathic pain and, and those kind of things, to remind people that we have discussed some of these topics in our previous podcasts. Uh, if you go onto the Enable Me website, you can find our podcast on pain. We talked quite a bit at length about this. We've also got podcasts on fatigue and spasticity, which I know often comes up in this in this sort of area. But I suppose now, I suppose because we are talking specifically about some of these other sensory issues, and it sounds like it's what you're saying, Susan, which is a matter of guiding the rewiring of the brain. So what kind of what kind of things can people do in terms of rehabilitation for sensory issues? Yeah, you're right. It is with it, guiding the rewiring is really great way to put it. So we want it to be purposeful. And to the best of our knowledge at the moment, it's, it's like, you know, you've, you've had a podcast about neuroplasticity and you know some of the kind of guiding principles around the use it or lose it. And it has to be, you know, very task-specific. It has to be meaningful to the person so that the brain can, um, is more likely to wire around meaning. So 
the current evidence for sensory retraining is uh, is literally around that. And there's some great work done by you know Leanne Carey in, uh, in Australia and others uh, internationally about training the specific senses. So um, you know, just like you might have specific training to compensate for visual loss. Um, um, and you know the mobility instructors and instructors and OTs and uh, so forth when you're working with walking will help train you to develop some compensations around that. Um, with tactile um, loss, um, there's some you know good evidence that that can be relearned. Um, it's, it has all those other criteria though. You need to practice a lot. It needs to be accurate. It needs to be meaningful and purposeful. Um, so it needs to make sense, in other words. So the, the sort of protocols for sensory retraining will use everyday objects and practice kind of everyday tasks. But instead of, um, you know, you're practicing the movement as such, you're actually practicing paying, paying, t- paying attention to very specific controlled sensory inputs. Um, so it requires a fair bit of concentration, um, um, but, you know, as I said, the evidence is emerging really, really well. Um, we've done some studies, too, about training proprioception. Um, and again, it's the same kind of criteria. It needs to be fairly purposeful, needs to be intense. The person needs to be fully engaged. Um, but, you know, we're, we're quietly confident that this is sort of the, one of the, the newer frontiers of, uh, of rehabilitation People will laugh when I say newer because it's actually been around for a long time. But uh, I think because it is so intensive, uh, it hasn't maybe received the attention that it deserves in the rehab settings sometimes. Mm. Um, My other point about why it's so important is, um, you know, obviously there's a safety issue about being able to appreciate touch. But if you think about the movement sensors, you know, and, and if we have a feedback loop in our body. We do a movement, we get immediate feedback about how good that movement was and we correct and we modify and we get better and that's learning. Um, if we don't have correct feedback, it's very difficult to get learning. It's a bit like, you remember when you were a student that the teacher never told you how you were getting on. You, you know, it's much harder to learn because you don't know what's right and what's wrong or what's better or what's worse. So we're particularly interested in, in retraining sensation to actually improve the quality of movement as well as the safety of, of people in their environment. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, Leanne Carey's work there, uh, which I believe is the SENSE program that she developed. Yes. Um, Karen, yes. you were one of the first people to go through that. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so, so, Chris, I, I was really fortunate while I was a, a patient in a rehabilitation hospital that my physiotherapist had done her PhD under Leanne Carey. Um, she'd done her PhD on how sensory loss impacts on movement. So the therapy was primarily physical therapy, um, you know, making sure I, I um, got good movement and effective movement in my, my arm and hand. Um, but um, at, at least she had some knowledge about the, the sensory aspects of that. But I was discharged from hospital with the hospital having really offered me everything that they could. And, um, you know, the, 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 the sensory loss was still having a really significant impact on my life and the lives of my children. And um, my phys- physiotherapist had talked to me about 
the work that um, Lee and Carey does um, for Florey Neurosciences Institutes. And I'm extraordinarily fortunate that I live 10 minutes away from um, the, the Heidelberg campus of the Melbourne Brain Centre. And, and also fortunate that um, I'm, I'm a reasonably confident person. So, um, you know, I, I Google search Dr. Leanne Carey and it's like, oh, 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 oh uh, you know, here's this really, really important um, brain researcher um, and emailed her and said, you know, hi, hi Leanne, I'm Karen and my brain's really interesting and um, I'd, I'd like to come and be your guinea pig, please. I participated in a couple of rounds of the research that underpins the um, SENSE um, retraining program that um, many therapists are now trained in and it's offered in some rehabilitation hospitals. So um, um, as Susan said, it it requires an incredible amount of um, concentration. It's absolutely exhausting to try and um, make sense of the really um, um, fine-grained differences in different things you might be touching when you're struggling to understand that you're touching them at all. So um, it, 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 it's really exhausting. So for me, what that involved um, in a research setting um, was blocks of six weeks of therapy with um, MRI scans um, before, during and afterwards to, to measure brain change. And what those MRI scans showed is that when I was, when images were being taken of, of my brain while my fingers were moving over different sur- surfaces, my whole brain was firing off trying to find the information it was looking for. And and that whole brain firing off trying to make sense of things was was part of what was contributing to really significant cognitive fatigue, and and what what happened over the course of the therapy is that um it um the 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 brain activation really 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 settled down in one place in my brain and it settled down right next to the side of my stroke. Um, so it, it was um, therapy in um, proprioception, so um, finger, wrist, and elbow position, um, and also um, um, train, um, um, tra- re- retraining sense of touch, and then applying those two things in, um, you know, my, my selected everyday tasks. So it was goal orientated. Did that uh, work a lot for you? Did it, uh, did it improve your sensory problems? Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I, I, I still still manage um, an imperfect sense of touch, but I mean, just to um, let you know the sorts of things that I, I worked on. Um, when I was discharged from hospital, I had um, reasonably long hair and I couldn't tie up my own hair in, in just a base, basic ponytail. So one of the things that I worked on in, in um, my sense therapy was an ability to plait my preschool-aged daughter's hair. So she'd reached the age where she wanted, you know, mummy to do pretty girly things to her hair. And, you know, I couldn't actually even tie her hair in a ponytail and she wanted me to plait her hair. So so over the course of the therapy, I I... I can now successfully plait her hair. It's not something that we do in a hurry on a school morning, but um, you know, with a quiet environment and as Susan's saying, when when I'm fresh and um with time and quiet, yes, I can plait her hair. But but not only that, um I um did a lot of craft before my stroke and 
Um, as I was going through um, a lot of the grieving impacts of my stroke, I really turned to craft as a, a meditative thing that recentered me in my own body and and helped me just find quiet in in all of that sensory overload and grieving. And one of the things that I wanted to be able to do was um, to be able to crochet again. Um, and, and that's an incredibly complex task if you don't have any feeling or, or understanding of where your fingers are and what they're doing. But, you know, with persistence, I now not only crochet, but I crochet blankets. So, so it's not like I'm, I'm struggling to, to crochet a basic square. I, I, I crochet rugs. So, you know, I really have very high order functioning. It, it, it's still hard work and it's still mm-hmm. exhausting. Um, but, you know, um, there's, there's n- really not very much that I want to be able to do with my hand now that I can't. Okay, that sounds like it's uh, quite a bit of improvement there. Um, Susan, uh, what else? Do you have any other, before we finish up, any other recommendations for uh, treatment for sensory issues? Um, I think just to reiterate that, you know, we're really working, there's a lot of us working hard to get this to people's attention. And there's a bit of a pun in there, um, bringing the senses to attention, you know, with the sort of push on rehab is, you know, to get people moving in and out and quickly. And I think, you know, Karen's example of the, the things that give us pleasure in life, you know, that if we can pay attention to those things in rehab and, the, 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 you know, the, these really subtle impairments that can make them just too difficult to try, um, you know, Karen's obviously got an extraordinary amount of um, motivation and persistence. And, I, you know, for people listening to the podcast, I'd, that, that would be my message is if you want to improve these things, you know, talk to your therapist and think about your own motivation and your ability to persist because with any of these kinds of retraining um, protocols and schedules, uh, you know, what you bring to the table is is absolutely paramount. And these sort of marvellous stories that Karen's told us, uh, I still can't plat Karen, so I think I might have to come to you and... Uh, Fortunately, I didn't have daughters. Uh, that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, but they're, they're terrific tales of encouragement, but it's qualified by hard work. Fantastic. Karen, do you have any other final advice for stroke survivors? Yeah. Um, my, my advice for stroke survivors would be pay attention to your emotional recovery. Find the things in life that bring you joy and think and, and bring you peace and you know, connect with other stroke survivors and understand the complex battle that you, you're having with yourself. You, you're not alone. Um, and, you know, uh, um, share, share advice and tips and support with other survivors and, you know, find the strategies that help, help you um, live the best life that you can. Well, thank you both, Karen and Susan, for, for sharing your knowledge and experience on this fairly complex topic. Uh, so that was stroke survivor Karen Bailey and Professor Susan Hillier. You're listening to the Enable Me podcast, enableme.org.au. If you're a family member or friend of someone that has had a stroke, you know that it's just the start of a long journey to reclaim their life. As one of Australia's biggest killers and the leading cause of adult disability, we still have a long way to go until we can say we have beaten it. At the Stroke Foundation, we draw our inspiration from the determination and persistence of stroke survivors. And that's why we work every day to prevent, treat and beat stroke. There are many ways you can join us to fight stroke, including volunteering your time.
time. Telling your story for us to share with the media. Speaking up and approaching your local Member of Parliament with our advocacy team. Getting your workplace or community group behind an event like National Stroke Week or Strive for Stroke. Running a fundraiser, donating or leaving a lasting gift in your will. Or just by sharing the fast message with the people around you. So all Australians will know how to recognise a stroke and act fast. Join the Fight Stroke team. Find out more at strokefoundation.org.au. Finally today we have Kirsty Cole. Kirsty is an occupational therapist and she can also be heard on the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line. Thanks again for coming in, Kirsty. Thanks, Chris. Now, I mentioned there that you're an occupational therapist, so I should say an OT. People might be familiar with that terminology. What is an OT's role in helping people with sensory issues? Well, Chris, we start by looking at how the sensory issue is impacting on the person's everyday activities. So if the person has experienced sensory loss, we begin by looking at strategies to improve their safety during tasks like cooking and personal care. Uh, So this brings me to the other part of the OT role, which is around sensory retraining. So we've already heard um, quite a bit from Karen and Susan about sensory retraining and what it involves. So basically as OTs, we're um, working with the stroke survivor to train the brain to regain that sense of touch. So the person works at identifying different textures and objects to then use them in their daily activities. So that's similar to what Karen was talking about, that she retrained her senses by doing practical things like the the crochet and uh, plaiting her daughter's hair. Mm, Yes. So repetition is key, as is doing meaningful tasks. Um, We also heard about proprioception. So uh, as therapists, we work with um, the person on their ability to know where their arm and hand is in space without looking. And Professor Kerry Sensor's approach, which Karen was talking about, um, looks at these types of sensory retraining that I've mentioned. Therapists might also use um, thermal stimulation using hot and cold. Um, They might use electrical stimulation on the affected side. And we often see improvement in proprioception when we're using constraint-induced movement therapy as well. So as you've heard from um, Karen and Susan, movement and sensation are, are quite closely linked. And as movement improves, sensation does as well. So because the repetitions of movement improve sensation at the same time. So the idea is if you feel something over and over again, the part of the brain that listens to that feeling expands as per the rules of neuroplasticity that we were talking about. Okay, now you mentioned the start there that uh, it's, it's helped people stop hurting them, not hurt themselves uh, if they have sensory issues. And I suppose this relates to what Karen was also talking about, how she would get her arm stuck on the door, for instance. What can people do if they have got ongoing issues to try and make their home safer or to... Uh, yeah, to stop hurt injuring themselves. So there, there's lots of different strategies and I will go through some of the more common ones. Uh, and it can be helpful to talk to your therapist about what strategies might suit your particular situation because those protective sensations, um, being able to feel pain and really hot temperatures are really important because if you're not able to immediately identify something's hot, then you're at risk of burning yourself when you're using the stove or getting into the shower. So a strategy for that might be testing the water before you go to put your hand in a sink full of hot water with the hand that's um, the sensation is intact. Also, where sensation is lost or diminished, your skin is at higher risk of pressure injury as well. So um, in order to manage pressure injuries, it's really important to be working with your health professionals. Uh, what, what do you mean by pressure injuries? Oh, so kind of things like feeling sharp sensations or um, uh, 
prolonged pressure on the hand. So uh, you could um, an injury from carrying a, a bag with a with a with a handle that's really narrow or um, might be cutting into your skin. So that causing pressure, right. that prolonged pressure can cause injury. And if you're not aware of that, that's be uncomfortable and um, causing pain, then you might not see the skin becoming reddened. Other ways to um, some some other common ways to avoid injury, say in the kitchen, is being careful with using metal utensils when you're cooking. Because if you leave that in a pot, obviously it can heat up. Then elsewhere in the house, um, you can try using enlarged handles on drawers or keys on suitcases, like I was talking about, um, to more evenly distribute that pressure on your hand. Uh, it's also important to make sure that when you're moving from, say, a wheelchair to your bed or your chair, to look after that arm to make sure that you know where it is. Um, because if you um, have, if you've not got the sensation and your arm kind of drops down to the side, you can risk injuring your shoulders or your skin can get caught on something as you're as you're performing that movement from one seat to the other. Um, those are some nice practical suggestions there. Um, what else uh, would be your top tips for uh, stroke survivors dealing with sensory issues? So I guess the main thing is the starting point would be to talk to your doctor about the sensation changes you've experienced post-stroke and whether referral uh, to allied health would be beneficial. It can be helpful to find an OT or physio who are specialised in neurological rehabilitation and there's directories of OTs and physios on their Physio Association website and the OT Australia website and you can actually search by specialty. Um, you can ask your therapist about sense training and some of the other therapies that we mentioned and whether it would be beneficial for you. Um, try to use your affected arm as much as possible and try to keep your arm injury free um, by getting help with the riskier activities. And of course, if you've got any questions about stroke treatment or recovery and support, you can give us a call on Stroke Line, which is the 1-800-787-653. I should have mentioned there the sense training you mentioned, that is the program developed by Leanne Carey, yes. isn't that, that? So, and people can't access it directly through her uh, laboratory, but they um, therapists are trained in that program, isn't mm. that correct? Yes. And that is something that people can look up. Thank you for that, Kirsty. Uh, remember now, if you want to speak to a health professional like Kirsty, you can call Stroke Line on 1-800-787-653. That is 1-800-STROKE. Or you can ask a question through Enable Me and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors. And that's all we have time for today. If you like what you've heard, please give us a good rating and review on iTunes as that helps other people to find our podcast. Thank you once again to our guests, Karen Bailey, Susan Hillier and Kirsty Cole. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. You can also suggest a topic or provide feedback on this podcast. Enable Me has qualified health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. The music in this podcast is Signs by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at facebook.com slash studio4four99. That's F-O-U-R-99. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the Stroke Foundation in Australia, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. See strokefoundation.org.au.